It's Tuesday, April 15th, 2023 from Peachfish Productions. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. And maybe in future years, we'll speak of these indictments, these four indictments, and one would assume trials, with the depth and distinction of, I don't know, deadheads talking about famous shows. No, 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 it was the Fillmore September 5th show where Jerry broke his guitar string in the middle of China Cat Sunflower. The 6th was when Phil screwed up the lyrics on Estimated Profit. In the same way, we will speak of, no, 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 the Georgia indictment. That was the RICO indictment. That was the one where Trump couldn't pardon anyone. And this is crucial. That was the one, do you remember this, where Kanye West's publicist was indicted. I will say this. I do know who Kanye West is. So in that regard, Trevion Kuti, she's doing a bang-up job. Charges related to forgery or false documents and statements, eight counts. Soliciting or impersonating public officers, three counts. Influencing witnesses, yeah, influencing, three counts. Election fraud or defrauding the state, three counts. And a count each related to perjury, racketeering, and computer tampering. Trump does not face all of these charges, but people who do face the charges could, what is the term de jure? Yes, they could flip on Trump and they all have exposure. I think of a certain gentleman named Mark Meadows. He might not want to go down with the ship, waylaid as the ship is by the Kraken. We will have much more with a top Fulton County defense attorney tomorrow. But on the show today, the middle ground between the lame-brained attack on the Women's World Cup loss as a casualty of wokeness, and just regarding the team's poor performance of having nothing to do with mindset at all, that will be in the spiel. But first, a few weeks ago, a FOIA request revealed a series of Slack messages among scientists who were putting together what would become a vital paper in defining the COVID-19 pandemic. They were looking for the proximal causes. In other words, did it originate in a lab or zoonotically? The scientists would go on to publish in the journal Nature Medicine. They discussed among themselves how they would mislead journalist Donald McNeil in the questions about lab origins. They had doubts about the natural origin of the virus. Their paper, however, concluded, quote, we do not believe that any type of laboratory-based scenario is plausible. Their internal discussions revealed otherwise. In his first interview since the publication of those Slack messages, Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist Donald McNeil is here, and that's next. On March 17th of 2020, so mere weeks after the coronavirus COVID-19 was revealed and America was grappling with it, a publication, Nature Medicine, printed a paper called The Proximal Origins of SARS-CoV-2. CoV-2 lead authors, Christian Anderson, Andrew Rambo, Lipkin, Holmes, and Gary. I will quote from the main takeaway line of that article, our analyses clearly show that SARS-CoV-2 is not a laboratory construct or a purposefully manipulated virus. So prior to the printing of this paper, a version of it had been going around as a preprint. Donald McNeil, the New York Times journalist, had seen this, and he had been contacting various scientists asking, and I will quote from an email that he wrote to a couple of the scientists on that actual Nature Medicine article that I quoted. He wrote, I'm trying to check out a rumor 
that an editor got from a government source that the U.S. government is trying to seriously investigate the possibility that the NCOV-2, novel COVID virus, came out of the Wuhan virus laboratory rather than out of a wet market. The scientists responded to him, but now, thanks to Racket News and a FOIA request, we know there was an internal Slack discussion among the scientists talking about essentially how to mislead or handle the McNeil request in a less than totally forthright way. Donald McNeil joins me now to talk about, I think publicly, the first time, what actually went on there, his reaction, what to make of where we stand on the lab leak theory. Donald, welcome back to The Gist. Thank you very much, Mike. How important was this Proximate Origins paper? It became one of the definitive documents addressing the whole question of where did COVID come from? And it stood for about a year pretty much unquestioned in that it uh, seemed to be the final word that the biggest experts that the U.S. government had consulted believed that the virus was a natural spillover from some undetermined animal probably in the market and not something that had leaked from a lab been manipulated in a lab to make it a bioweapon or, or, or anything like that. When you read the paper, when you observed all the discussion among experts, even beyond those whose names were on the paper, what was your thinking? Well, you said for about a year. What was your thinking for a while about the strength of the paper, the overall strength of the argument that we could rule out a lab leak theory? In early February, rumors, crazy rumors began circulating in, in general, never mind the paper. Um, crazy rumors began circulating in general that this was a bioweapon, that it was created in some sort of Chinese defense lab that was making bioweapons. Also, there were preprints saying that it had HIV genes in it that you know suggested that it was a bioweapon, that it had snake genes in it, which suggested it came out. There were all sorts of wild, wacky rumors circulating. But among those was a rumor picked up by some of our um, reporters in the Washington Bureau who uh, look into, into um, you know, national, who have national security sources saying that the U.S. government was investigating whether or not it had come out of the Wuhan lab. And I was asked to look into that um, you know, by my editors in science. And so I started writing individually to various evolutionary biologists I knew saying, look, is there anything in this virus that suggests to you that it might have been engineered, that human hands have manipulated in any way? And really, if a virus has been manipulated by human hands, can you tell? You know, I didn't know the answer to that question. Mm -hmm. I don't know if, you know, if there is some genetic tool that is used to insert things or remove things from a virus, does it leave traces? So I was asking those kinds of basic questions. I did not know at the time that there had been this whole discussion by um, Jeremy Farrar of the Wilkham Institute and, and, uh, and, and Tony Fauci and Francis Collins of the NIH of the possibility that this had been engineered. And that was... That question had been raised. I learned more than two years later, that question had been raised by some of these scientists, mostly because they were suspicious about this thing called the furin cleavage site existing in that family of viruses, which had not been seen before. They were concerned that maybe it had been inserted or that the virus 
some virus had been grown in a lab in a way that allowed it to mutate so that it became better adapted to human cells. You, you would do that by either growing it in, in human cells in a lab or in animals that had been humanized to have human immune systems like quote humanized mice um, so that it adapted better to humans. It, it, the, the virus sprang out of nature and seemed to spread remarkably well among humans, which surprised some scientists. So what, what I'm trying to say is I didn't know about this group before scientists. I didn't know that there had been this discussion going on between top scientists with Fauci and anybody else. All I knew was that there were rumors going around in Washington, many of them pretty crazy. Some of them, you know, according to our Washington Bureau reporters from credible sources, but Th mm -hmm. Those sources didn't give any explanation about how, about how they might possibly have known. They didn't say anything about a foreign cleavage. They said, this came out of a Chinese lab. And of course, the Trump administration at the time was engaged in a whole effort to start blaming the Chinese for how badly things were going in the United States, you know, uh, it, it deflect from its own lack of preparation. And so I was checking all this out. So what would have been evidence are these important scientists who wrote this influential paper actually engaging with you on the questions you asked and what has been revealed in, from internal conversations they had among themselves was that the lead author of that study, he wrote a response to you, which began, hi, Don, which probably would have uh, set off alarm bells since you're Donald, not Don, to people who know you. And there was humor involved. And here is Christian Anderson, literally, uh, describing his letter to you, his email to you, among the other scientists. Okay, here's what I'm thinking. This is playing on his previous emails and includes humor to deflect the fact that I'm dismissing him. Can't ignore him and can't just give him the scientific story that would only lead to follow-up questions. Um, so I'm going to ask you how shocked you were, probably not as a seasoned reporter, but the influence of that dismissal on ultimately taking into account the fact that you, the Times, society itself was performing a kind of triage on what's the, what was the most important information to be getting out at that exact moment. But that dismissal, how much of an impact or effect did it have on the fact that you and the Times never fully reported um, anything approaching the rebuttal that you were working on? Well, I didn't know I was being dismissed. I, 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 I got a funny letter, I mean, a funny note from Christian Anderson. Uh, you know, we made a joke about he was in the Mojave Desert. Um, he could only get a single bar, he said. And I said something about have fun in those singles bars. And uh, I didn't know they were in the Mojave. And, uh, you know, it was it was back and forth. But what, what I did know is that he didn't give me any more information. Now, you have to understand the context of this. The first set of letters I had written, the first set of notes I had written to to two of the four eventual, two of the five eventual authors, were to Christian Anderson and Andrew Rambo, and I was asking very specific questions about can you tell that there's been any change in the virus? I, I you know, I'm pleased to see that I was asking the right questions that early. And John Cohen of Science Magazine, it should be noted, was also asking similar questions. He's a terrific reporter. Um, and they were putting both of us off. There's more detail in how they put me off in, in the slide chats. But, but, but when, when that answer from Christian came on the 19th, the paper had already been posted on virological.org, and my editors had changed my assignment and asked me if I could write a sort of narrative about when did this rumor begin to circulate, what was 
you know, what did scientists think when they first heard this rumor? How did they feel? It was kind of, and he didn't want to go into a narrative. He felt well, he now says it sort of would have been an invasion of his personal life, but at the time he, he was being mostly Anderson. Anderson, yeah. yeah. He now says it was an invasion of his personal life. He didn't want to answer, you know, personal questions about his thinking or anything like that. But, but really, they were debating again how to get rid of me, and and you know because I was asking difficult questions and get rid of me, but get rid of me. Don't just ignore him. They were ignoring some other reporters apparently, um, but they were said nice things about my coverage, and I had. I didn't know any of these guys personally. I've met one personally at a conference, but they were not buddies or anything, but they were people that I had, they were sources. They were people that I had email and and, th- and telephone conversations back and forth with. And so they were not completely blowing me off, but they were trying to get rid of me without, um, without giving any more of an answer than they had before, which was essentially, we don't see anything in the, virus that proves that it was manipulated. But they, again, were not saying we worried quite a bit for quite a while that it was manipulated. And we have now convinced ourselves that it was not. There's still no definitive proof even now, but you know, they definitely worried about it. Was his response therefore effective in what his motivation was, which is to get you to stop writing the story? Or was it more the case that you're doing this broad canvassing of people who may know? And if someone says, look, in whatever way, a nice way, a dismissive way, a funny way, yeah, I'm not going to comment on this. You just have so much else to do in the middle of this raging pandemic. It doesn't matter what you think of why he said that you're going to move on. That's probably accurate. I I was I had other assignments like these big predict the future assignments. I wasn't getting anything new from him or anybody else involved. I obviously did not know about the the phone call, the February 1st phone call or the other things that we now know about because of FOIA acts by other, by other reporters. So I didn't know the context. So I didn't have anything new to say. So I just kind of let it go. Yeah. So dismissing you is one thing people uh, of power dismiss journalists all the time, effectively or ineffectively. But what they were doing internally, the, the discussions they were having internally might well be another. Now, Christian Anderson, in as part of these Slack conversations that were made public, talked about disproving the lab leak theory. And now he frames it as it was scientists doing science and having private conversations. Essentially, his argument that the discussions they were having among themselves was a a form of uh, stress testing or asking the hard questions internally so they could come up with a good answer externally. Does that pass the smell test to you? Well, I think the scientists are genuinely offended that Congress subpoenaed their private Slack conversations because, as happens in any private conversation, whether it's between scientists or journalists or billionaires or anybody else, you say stuff you don't want in public. I mean, they referred to another top scientist as butt lesion because he was a pain in the ass, and and um, you know they don't like uh, to uh, they don't like it. Some of the jokes that they made. Um, about the government program to uncover viruses may have started the pandemic were the sort of things that for them were jokes, but right. look bad. Sure. Questions of tone, questions of taste, questions of comportment. That's one category. But they're denying 
now that there was any that this was any they're saying that this there this was simply scientific inquiry and deny that there were any political decisions involved to put off knowledge of the fact that they were worried that the virus had been a lab, lab construct and i think that's being disingenuous even now they clearly were worried at the time they clearly did not thought it would be reckless and and that's what Christine Anderson said to me, it would have been reckless to disclose our speculation. Well, okay, maybe it was reckless, um, but they made a decision to redirect questions or not answer questions um, so that nobody knew they were worried about that possibility. So their recklessness led them to make decisions that you could say amount to a cover-up, except that it was just covering up their own speculations and inquisitiveness. They didn't want the world to know that they were worried about this. The deficits of the paper, which uh, you said were they weren't as forthcoming as they actually were in real life about their the strength of their conclusions. They had doubts. They didn't reveal those doubts. They communicated that this is... Uh, you know, this is a stronger conclusion than we had. What is the effect of those deficits on anything? I don't think that makes much difference um, because that's, they only knew what they knew. Um, the fact that they concealed some of their worries doesn't really change what we, the world, know about what was going on in China at the time and what other viruses are out there in nature. Now, be it said, no absolute smoking gun has been found. But I think, I personally think the evidence in favor of a zoonotic spillover rather than a lab leak theory has been getting stronger and stronger in the three plus years now since the epidemic began. Um, so finding out that, that you know, a small group of scientists didn't say everything they worried about when they wrote a paper doesn't really change the the demands we should put on China for a full explanation. The, the main thing that's missing in this is China has never, China has said, essentially, take our word for it. No such work was being done in Wuhan um, that could possibly have allowed this virus to evolve. And the world wants to know, well, okay, if you say that's true, prove it. Open the lab you know, logs of not just the Wuhan Institute of Virology, or not just Xi Li's lab, but all the other labs at the Wuhan Institute of Virology and the labs at the Wuhan CDC, which was closer to the market and the other labs, and, and proved to us that nobody there was manipulating this virus or, or growing it in human cells or growing it in humanized mice in a way that might have produced this. If you're, if you're so sure that it, that didn't happen, show us how you know. And that has not been forth. China has not been forthcoming about that. And you know, I think it's like one of those great questions in you know in history in the history of authoritarian states. Like, was Alger Hiss really a Soviet spy, or did you know Fidel Castro have anything to do with the assassination of John F. Kennedy? That we will not get the answer to until an authoritarian state decides to open up all of its files to public scrutiny. And I'm not convinced that that will happen in my lifetime, or yours, or maybe my grandchildren's. Have you had contact with any of the authors since the revelations about Slack channels come out? Yes. I wrote to all four of them saying I'm having to rewrite my chapter in light of the way I was misled. Um, here's what I'm planning to write. Do you have any 
response, um, which I'll include. And I got uh, from one of the authors, I got a very quick dismissive, you know, you misquoted me um, response. And from Christian Anderson, I got a long thought out um, multi-paragraph response, um, essentially saying it is false to say that we misled you um, and saying, essentially saying it would have been reckless to tell you about our speculation that we were making, which was later disproved. Um, I, f I will include that answer in my rewrite. Um, I don't completely accept it because it seems clear to me that there was a debate and a decision to mislead me by leaving out, um, their earlier suspicions. Now you can say whether or not that's right. It would have been reckless to tell me about their suspicions. That's that's a separate debate, I think. But they they just kind of left out an important part of the whole equation, I think. And they decided to do that as quite a deliberate act. And they talked and even joked among themselves about how to keep me in the dark about the fact that they I mean, as they said, we can't just tell him the science. Is, is that one of the quotes in there? I don't remember. I don't remember that one. Can't ignore him and can't just give him the scientific theory that would only lead to follow-up questions. So that's a contradiction between it would be reckless to engage in speculation. But what he told his fellow authors at the time was, we can't give him the scientific theory. He's now framing that to you as engaging in speculation, quite different things. It was a hypothesis. It was a fear. Perhaps this virus, they definitely had this fear. That was one of their hypotheses that this virus had been manipulated in the lab. They did not want to tell me that that was one of their original hypotheses. What they told me instead was we haven't found any evidence that it's been manipulated in the lab, but they didn't want to say- Yeah, but my point was when he's, when he's writing non-defensively to people of his own mindset, he describes the idea that it was a lab leak as the, the scientific theory. When he's writing to you, defending his actions, that same mode of thought he describes as engaging in speculation. They're both, I guess, the same thing, but when he's writing not for public consumption, I would think it reveals what he actually thinks of that idea more accurately, to call it a scientific theory rather than speculation. It was it was their fear that they were and they were it was a hypothesis and they were testing that hypothesis among themselves and doing research to see if there was evidence of things like fur and cleavage sites in nature in in that family of viruses. They didn't they they decided among themselves not to tell me they had that fear, which led me to believe that they never thought there was any such thing, uh, any possibility in nature. So that's what I mean. I wasn't lied to, but it was a sort of a, what is a Catholic you would call a sin of omission. And, um, you, you, you left, you, you failed to do something you might have done that would have been more honest had you done it. Donald G. McNeil was a longtime reporter for the New York Times. He shared in the Pulitzer Prize for coverage of the coronavirus. His book coming out in 2024, the first days of 2024, is to be titled Wisdom of Plagues, Lessons from 25 Years of Covering Pandemics. Donald, thank you so much. Thank you very much, Mike.
And now the spiel. Spain has qualified as a finalist in the Women's World Cup. Their opponent will either be Australia or England, but not the United States. We knew it wouldn't be the United States for over a week now since Megan Rapino and three of her teammates failed to convert their penalty kicks. And U.S. goalkeeper Alyssa Nair, who had saved a Swedish penalty and converted one of her own, came up empty by inches. Hurting. Off Nair. Did it go in? Wow. Sweden wins. Now, why did Megan Rapino miss? It was because she uses the term unhoused instead of homeless. And why did the stalwart American keeper seem to save the winning Swedish kick only to have replay reveal that it went in? It was no doubt because she uses the word Latinx. Actually, I might be taking advantage of your unfamiliarity with soccer. Those explanations centering on social justice stances of the members of the U.S. women's national team, they turn out not to be good explanations for athletic failure. But Donald Trump didn't care. He essentially made the argument, as did conservative commentators, including many a self-styled patriot who declared they were rooting against their national team because Megan Rapinoe kneels during the national anthem, or because some members of their team dye their hair and openly support LGBTQ rights. Okay, so giant idiots offering giant dollops of numbskull duggery should not be a headline, but it became one since we are in a culture war and we enjoy being aggrieved by terrible opinions and also maybe a little bit to salve the wounds of the former dominant force in women's soccer not being good enough this go-round. I came across an episode of On the Media, a show that I worked for for many years, and being interviewed was Vox correspondent Alex Abad Santos, who, quote, explains what society obsesses over from Marvel and movies to fitness to skincare to gay stuff, according to his Twitter bio, X, his X bio. He and guest host Michael Lowinger took the stupid musings of Donald Trump and the you miss the kick because you like land acknowledgements crowd as a referendum on the very idea promulgated by many on the right, that if you go woke, you go broke. They also lumped into this sentiment the former U.S. soccer star and current Fox Sports studio host, Alexi Lalas. Here's Abad Santos characterizing Lalas's response. He had posted on X, which is formerly known as Twitter, the U.S. women's national team is polarizing. Politics, causes, stances, and behavior have made this team unlikable to a portion of America. The team has built its brand and derived its power from being the best and winning. If that goes away, they risk becoming irrelevant. And then his critics quickly pointed out, like, this man has never, ever been in any danger of winning a World Cup. Under his own terms, you could argue that, like, well, the men's national team is irrelevant since it's never won. The general message is these unlikable women hate America. It's good that they lost, even though they represent America. Other members of the media heap scorn on Lawless as well. Here's CNN's Brianna Keeler setting her sights on him. Uh, the former U.S. men's national team player turned commentator Alexi Lawless tweeted, don't kill the messenger. This team is polarizing. Politics, causes, stances, and behavior have made this team unlikable to a portion of America. I mean, we should note uh, that his record, if you put it up against, say, uh, Megan Rapinoe's, it pales quite in comparison. The graphic shown there compared Rapinoe's nine goals and seven assists in World Cups to Lawless's zero. Lawless was a defender, but here's the key. Megan Rapinoe is a much better player than Lawless ever was. 
But that key doesn't unlock all doors because Alexi Lalas, while not as good a player, is an astute commentator who has been talking about the U.S. women's team's comportment all tournament long. And agreeing with him has been Carly Lloyd, former U.S. women's star, who is every bit the player Rapino is. But in any case, the idea that a former player who's now an expert has no right to comment on current players who surpassed his achievement, it's among the dumbest tropes in sports media misdirection. Also is misrepresenting Alexi Lalas' stance. Here's about Santos. Alexi Lawless, whose job it is to be interested in explaining to us, like, why our offense looks so bad, was not interested in that. But Alexi Lawless spoke at length for hours and hours on air and in his podcast, exactly expressing his interest or anguish at the United States' lack of offense and dynamism and togetherness. After the U.S.'s very disappointing nil-nil draw against Portugal... Here's Alexei Lalas speaking about the team that he wished could just show up going forward. This is one that is dynamic. This is one that scores goals. But again, this is one that we have yet to see. And here's Lalas on the eve of the game against Sweden, exhibiting a desperation that the players themselves failed to evince. Will the team, he asks, exhibit the excellence that had eluded them thus far? And all of a sudden, this team that now is dynamic and attacks and scores and, uh, you know, is uh, more proactive in the way that they play suddenly shows up. They did not. And for Lawless, the team's politics, which one gets the sense he does not share, are beside the point. He and Carly Lloyd had been calling the team out for showboating, dancing, profiling, bragging, singing, carrying on. But while doing that, not getting the job done, not putting the ball in the back of the net. And yeah, it's a classic old guard chastises the youngins for playing with swagger, but it's also a classic of a team has to be able to back up its image with on-field substance. And that's what Lawless was getting at in his tweet, which he actually laid out in less ambiguous detail on his podcast. This U.S. women's national team has built their brand and their identity around being the best and winning. And yet, and we've talked about this before, I think there are a lot of people out there and a lot of Americans that are rubbed the wrong way from this team. And you know, for any number of reasons, and a lot of reasons that have sometimes nothing to do with soccer. If this team bombs out against Sweden, it's not just about losing a game. It's not just about going out of the World Cup. The big risk is that they lose their relevance. The big risk is that they become irrelevant because if they don't have that fuel that is winning and that is being the best, that platform and that power and that voice and you know, that megaphone that they have, that goes away very, very quickly. I mean, he's right. He's essentially saying whatever I or you think about the politics won't matter if they win. What he's saying is, should this team win, they'll be free to engage in whatever social justice politics they want to engage in. And now that they didn't win, well, I guess we'll see how the endorsement opportunities and media attention afforded this iteration of the women's national team compares with the last two. The last two which won the World Cups. Lawless and Carly Lloyd were not making a go-woke, go-broke point. Theirs was more 
something like amass distractions and you will accrue detractors. And also amass distractions and it could hurt your play. True, some of those distractions were that the team's highest profile player aggressively criticized Donald Trump. And some were what everyone who paid attention to the team saw, a collection of athletes who acted like they were a bit more dominant than the record showed. Dancing, singing, signing autographs after a 0-0 draw that barely inched them into the knockout round, which would in fact prove prophetic. They led with swagger as their offense stagnated. This was not a group of players who seemed bothered by how bad they were playing. And to see that and notice it and note it isn't really about ideology or doesn't have to be. It's more about the idea of mentally committing to the important and sometimes less fun parts of being the best in the world. So the criticism of the team as woke, it is largely idiotic, but criticizing their mindset and comportment as inherently Trumpist, that is also reductive. At one point, Abad Santos listed the legitimate critiques of this team. If any of those players had actually like clinched it, we probably would have won. But if you ask soccer experts like what was happening, the U.S. has had a lot of troubles in recent years because they're basically in a transition phase of having old players and having new players and veterans and mixing. There was nothing going right for the U.S. at the beginning of this World Cup. Not to mention all of the injuries. Yeah, so many injuries, a roster that was depleted, a coach that people now are saying was in over his head and wasn't making the best decisions. All of these are valid criticisms of the U.S. team, right? Well, to address the obvious, if they would have clinched it, yeah, they would have clinched it. But notice how the mental approach among the players is not listed among the valid. Notice how talking about the overall attitudinal disposition of the players, including Rapino, who laughed, she said ruefully, after her missed PK was elided. I don't even know that the big problem was mental. Whenever a team underperforms, their mentality is always called into question. But sometimes that is an apt critique, is it not? Not treated as such in this case. I do think that actual valid critiques, like Lawless's, were folded into a political context undeservedly, often from analysts who might not have the most in-depth knowledge of sports. To Colin Kaepernick, to LeBron James. If you're dunking, you should know the game. There is a final point to make about the backlash to the really dumb critiques of the women's failure serving as a shield to better critiques. It does no favors to these athletes, their competitors, or future generations to take off the table any blame beyond it's the fault of injuries, coaching, or the blending of generations, which always happens with national teams. There are times when champions, or once heroic champions, reveal themselves to be lacking in areas within their control, the physical, the strategic, and even the mental. The women of this U.S. women's national team can put the blame on circumstance to a large degree, political leanings, I'd say, to basically no degree, but on their own agency and mental approach to some degree. Being honest about that has nothing to do with going woke or going broke but is the only way for the fortunes of the national team and their fans to prosper.
And that's it for today's show. Corey Wara did it all. He was the producer. He was the senior producer. He was the tape wrangler. Joel Patterson retains his status as senior producer. You should note, this is a big Corey show. Michelle Pesca is CLO of Peachfish Abatement. The Gist is presented in collaboration with Libsyn's AdvertiseCast. For advertising increase, go to AdvertiseCast.com slash The Gist. Do Pru, G Pru, Do Pru. And thanks for listening.